Hi, this is Damien from New City, Orlando. You're listening to our CBR Bible Project series, where each episode we introduce a different book of the Bible as it coincides with CBR. To learn more about Community Bible Reading or CBR, visit newcityorlando.com forward slash CBR. All right. Mike, it's good to be with you. Great to be with you. So today we're going to be talking about Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is in the Old Testament. It's quite a large book of the Bible, and uh, it would be a mistake, but one that many of us have been guilty of at one point in our life to think that it may not be super important for us as Christians. But I'd love for you to start off by telling us a little bit about why reading Deuteronomy is really important for us. Yeah, I mean, it's really significant in its own time and place, but one of the ways that it's significant is the very title Deuteronomy comes from two words, Deutero, second, and namas, law. It's the second giving of the law of God. And it's really interesting because the law had been given to a bunch of folks in the wilderness who don't own anything, don't have Mm. cities, they're nomads on their way to the promised land. And Deuteronomy is for a people who are about to be wealthy, landed, secure, and it reapplies the law. And so... The Ten Commandments that are given in Exodus 20 are given again in Deuteronomy in chapter 5, but they are explained and applied in ways that wouldn't have made sense many times in the earlier phase. Mm -hmm. And so Hmm. Deuteronomy itself shows us how an old text can actually be reapplied in fresh and challenging ways in a new situation. Uh, It's it's in one sense the first example of that in the Mm -hmm. Bible. So it's actually a model for how to read God's Word from a prior time and see how it impacts us today. Hmm. Um, We're not Israelites in the promised land right now in all sorts of ways, uh, but we can learn how to read earlier law and earlier story and see how it impacts our lives by this word for these people looking back to an earlier set of commands and stories that Hmm. shaped them. Hmm. So when we read the New Testament, do we see Deuteronomy showing up quite a bit? Yeah, it shows up all over the place uh, and in all sorts of ways. I mean, there are commands that are repeated, and perhaps that's not surprising. But it's also described as a a text that points to our hope and to God's promise. So like in Romans 10, Paul will speak of how there's the way of uh, sort of law uh, and of works, and he quotes from earlier in the Pentateuch there. But then when he describes the way in which the gospel uh, is not something that you have to go up to find or something you have to go down to seek after, but it it's near you, he quotes Deuteronomy. It's a book mm. that describes how God draws near, how God uh, shows mercy, how God pulls through for his people. So it's a book that's quoted often both for its moral teaching, but also for the way it describes the good works of the gospel that God promises and he delivers on. Mm. That's really good. So I'm I'm curious, you already mentioned one thing about the way in which uh, sort of its contribution to, to the Bible. Uh, there's the historical context uh, in the, the time and place that it was written to those people. Uh, also, it happens, you said, to be a model of how to uh, apply uh, earlier teaching in new situations. Um, would there be any, any other ways that you can speak to Deuteronomy being important uh, in, in the canon, the Bible? Yeah, I mean, it it points forward in all sorts of ways to Jesus, Mm. and in very different ways. Um, There are passages that'll speak of how 
you know, there there is a figure greater than Moses who shall come, but no one at the time of the writing of Deuteronomy's completion has matched that. Hmm. It leads you to long and want for who's going to be that next figure. Um, and the New Testament, of course, describes Jesus as, among other things, the one who's a prophet and ruler greater than Moses. Um, but it also points to Jesus in other ways that are maybe a little more mysterious. Hmm. Like Deuteronomy ends in kind of a mysterious way. It, it describes in chapter 29, after it's given all these commands, uh, and it tells you that you have to keep them if you're going to stay in the land and enjoy God's good favor. And then in chapter 29, it says that they won't keep the commands and they'll have to be exiled or sent out from the land. It predicts this before they've hmm. even entered. And they will have to be judged like the nations are being judged right at the beginning uh, in chapter 7. And uh, you might think that's really morose and sad and just, frankly, depressing before they've entered in. But then chapter 30 comes, and it describes a promise of God. He's going to circumcise their hearts. He's going to change them. He's going to give them life. But it doesn't describe how he can give them life. It doesn't Mm. describe how their sin can be dealt with. There's a promise it will be dealt with, but the mechanism, the means for it, is underdetermined or unstated. Mm. And it leads any thinking reader or hearer in that day to ask, so how's God going to pull that off? He's a God of justice and holiness, but he's promising mercy to people he says deserve death. Mm. Like, how does that work out? And it's a long ways to see what Jesus does as the solution, as the one who brings together God's mercy and justice. But that tension at the end of Deuteronomy, um, that helps prepare our hearts Mm. to receive him. That's good. I think that you're you're already going in a trajectory that this question falls into. What do you think uh, will help readers make sense of Deuteronomy? I mean, that that's a good example of ways in which it might that tension may be confusing or have some dissonance uh, in a reader's mind. But but uh, you you already began to answer it. But what do you think would help readers make sense of reading Deuteronomy? Yeah, I, I think part of it would be paying attention to sort of its structure and its genre, which is a weird question. In the case of Deuteronomy, it's a it's a blending of different things. On the face of it, it's a sermon that Moses gives, mm. but it's a weird sermon um, because it also includes almost 20 chapters of case law from either chapter 7 or chapter 12 all the way through uh, almost to chapter 28. And uh, that makes for a strange sermon. And then it's got songs and it's got prophecies at the end. And it's uh, really interesting to, to ask, how does each part contribute to the whole? Mm. And, uh, you know, in lots of ways, Deuteronomy 5 is, is helpful in, in helping us understand the big picture, reminding us that these are people who are about to enter into the promised land. They're pilgrims. And it's really helping shape them to continue to live as pilgrims, even though they're about to be people who are possessors. Mm. And in all sorts of ways that connects with yeah. us today, mm. because we do possess certain things spiritually that even they didn't. Uh, we live this side of the coming of Christ. We've got the New Testament. We've got greater revelation. We've got uh, the great acts of Pentecost and the ascension, um, but we're still pilgrims. And the New Testament tells us that regularly. And so we can learn how to live as people who have arrived in one sense, but are still very much on the journey and struggling mm. and awaiting entry into the promised land. And and that kind of tension and dynamic really runs through the whole book. Mm. 
that it'll it'll start by looking back at great things God's done to deliver them. It'll describe what God wants them to be. And it'll really frankly and realistically describe how God knows they're going to stumble and God knows and promises he's going to intervene with mercy. Uh, and that's going to lead to life. Mm. And it seems to me that if you, you keep your eye on kind of that big picture and structure, then we can identify pretty directly with it. Yeah. Even if there are lots of differences in life circumstance. Yeah. Do you think if we keep our, our, our mind's eye on that larger structure, that it almost can be understood as a blueprint of faithfulness, this idea of looking back of what God's done, looking forward to ways in which we may be tempted to, to stray and so on? Do you think that would be a way to talk about it? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think, and in two senses, I mean, it, it's a description of how God is going to be faithful and has been faithful. So it, it's not a small thing that chapters one to four are there and they're looking back. And they describe Israel's failure, yes, especially in chapter 1 and chapter 4, but also God's provision Mm -hmm. in bringing them right to the edge of the River Jordan, ready to go in. And so it's meant to bolster and to encourage their confidence in God. Mm. And we need that all the time, I think, you know, to look back, to make remembrance, uh, to see the ways God has pulled through, even oftentimes right in the face of our screw-ups and sin. Mm. Yeah. but then it goes on and it describes, okay, what would faithfulness look like on our side of the relationship? Yeah. What does it look like for us to lean in, in love and trust? How does that play out in every sphere of life uh, with our money, you know, with regard to sexual and familial relationships, with regard to justice and government and economics and work, um, with regard to enemies and people that, for whatever reason, we're at odds with? Um, it really paints a picture in really concrete and sometimes challenging, even frustrating terms of, of what love demands. Mm. And that's really helpful. It was a challenge to them and it, in all sorts of ways, it's still a challenge to us. Yeah. So you already mentioned that Deuteronomy can, is a strange book in a certain way and, it, and, it's, and it, it's an interesting conversation of genre, but uh, what genre is it usually uh, given to? Yeah, uh, there are massive disagreements among scholars. So this is one of those books that is far more debated in terms of genre today than almost any other. Uh, A number of people think it's basically a constitution Mm -hmm. to describe sort of the polity and governance of Israel as a nation once they're on the other side and they're in the promised land that they'll govern. And so there's a lot of truth to that. Um, We often throw around the word theocracy describing modern political circumstances but this is describing a legitimate theocracy. It's not just religious people sort of instituting God delivers a constitution. This, yeah. is, this is God's idea of how you run life um, for this people in this place. And, and there's some deep truth to that. It's also a sermon, though. It, it's a constitution delivered by God through Moses to the people. And it's not just a sermon at that one time, but we read that it it's meant to be read to the people again and again and again in sermon-like fashion. Mm. And uh, so it is meant to move and inspire and provoke and challenge and comfort. Um, And it's a blending really of those two sorts of things that are meant to shape people, to uh, encourage and motivate them, but also to govern how they live together. Mm. That's good. As you have studied Deuteronomy and as us and CBR and other ways would engage Deuteronomy. Are there 
any key phrases that show up that we could pay attention to that would help us as sort of handles or hooks as we go through? Yeah. I mean, one of the phrases that you see appearing again and again, anytime there's sort of a, a, a switch of a section is uh, coming across the phrase, like at the beginning of chapter six, for instance, these are the statutes and commandments and ordinances of God. Mm. Um, and it typically says, these are the statutes, commandments, and ordinances that you are to do in the land that you may dwell well. It'll phrase it slightly differently, but it describes this is the kind of behavior that's to mark life in the promised land that it may go well for you. Uh, and you see that again and again and again, that this is about living in land, in prosperity, in God's provision. It's about leaning against the ways that being landed and prosperous can be really tempting. Um, and so Deuteronomy will really address a lot of the ways in which we, as Christians, but also as Americans, who have really good lives in all sorts of ways, materially mm -hmm. and politically, that we are tempted to be arrogant, to be self-centered, to be entitled in all sorts of different ways, or to be embittered mm. um, because we feel we should be entitled, but it's not working out. Mm. Um, and so again and again, these are the statutes and commands and ordinances that are going to be there as sort of rhythms or rubrics to help keep us dependent, even when we're living in a, a time in a land of plenty. Mm. Yeah. That's good. So um, how do you think... Um, we should be aware of ways that we might incorrectly try to apply or appropriate Deuteronomy to our present day uh, lives. Yeah. I mean, there's the mistake of believing that somehow this can be directly applied, sort of drop down just in any other political situation. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the commands here only make sense if you are the chosen people of God and God has promised to dwell in your midst. You know, if there's an Ark of the Covenant right there and your army can go out knowing that God fights for you um, when you trust him. Uh, and that's not true of anybody other than the people of Israel in this time and place, geopolitically speaking. So, uh, you know, there have been different instances throughout history where Christians have been tempted toward what we might call theonomy, believing mm. that you could take these laws or the laws of the Pentateuch as a whole, particularly from Exodus through Deuteronomy, and you can somehow drop them in and institute them, um, you know, in this or another country today, and it'll go well. Um, and that's a danger that, that misses the fact that they're, they're all based on this idea that they're God's people and he's made particular promises to bless them. Mm -hmm. um, however, there's a dangerous pendulum swing, and that's to say, well, this is just completely disconnected from our lives and from our social uh, commitments today. And that's to miss the fact that though they are based on these particular promises to the Israelites then and there, uh, Christians are the inheritors of that. We're heirs of that. We don't have a nation state. We're called to be dispersed. God hasn't promised to make one army victorious if they carry his ark into the battle today. Mm -hmm. um, that's true of the church. Uh, and yet there's all sorts of ways in which the, the Westminster Confessional speak of the general equity, uh, the way in which there are basic principles woven through these laws. Mm. Uh, there's sort of proverbial wisdom 
And that's meant to inform us how we think about money, how we think about sex, how we think about worship, how we think about relationships and dealing with disagreements, um, all sorts of ways in which we guard our hearts and we shape our lives. And, and so we do read the text, even if we don't apply it theonomically, we do read it to ask how it's going to shape our application of Christian wisdom, our application of the same Ten Commandments today mm-hmm. in a new phase. Um, so those would be two dangers mm-hmm. to avoid mm-hmm. as we think about it. Yeah, let's let's go a little farther on the last thing that you mm-hmm. said. When we come to a book like Deuteronomy with with so many chapters restating the law uh, for this new season of life in the land, I think it could raise. It's it's a good place to raise the the conversation of what is the role of the law in Christian discipleship. So could you speak to that some? Yeah. So, I mean, law describes the way in which life works out well. One of the best interpreters of Deuteronomy, a guy named Patrick Miller, describes it as painting the picture of the good neighborhood. Hmm. This is the place you would want to live. Um, And it's never fully realized. Israel screws it up right from the get-go. And and of course, things don't work out well over the long run. And that was predicted. But if people live this way, it would be the good neighborhood. Um, And it's, it's fitting, you know, the Sermon on the Mount and later teaching the New Testament. Um, being given the law doesn't change your heart. Being given the law doesn't make you want it. And that's why the law itself talks about the importance first and foremost of love. Mm. You know, Deuteronomy 6, 4 is probably the most famous verse, not just in this book, but maybe the Old Testament, other than like Genesis 1, 1. Um, you know, hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, you shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes referred to as the Shema, because that first word here in, in Hebrew is Shema. And it describes who God is. Mm-hmm. He's the only God. He provides everything. Therefore, you love him with everything you have. Uh, it only makes sense to love him with everything you've got, because he's the one behind everything you need. Um, that's a really challenging word. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't simply say, obey him with everything you've got. Mm-hmm. It says you should love him, you should cherish him, you should uh, prize him, you should find him appetizing and beautiful um, and attractive. And it describes again and again how we can fail to do that. Like chapter one begins by telling stories of Israel from the Exodus to the time of these words being given to Moses. And in, in 132, it describes one of the sins that the book of Numbers tells in 13 and 14, where... God tells them it's time to cross the river, go into the promised land. And they say, oh, we'll send spies. We'll check it out. And the spies go and they come back and they say, well, we can't go attack. The people, you know, they'll, they'll wipe us out. They're big, they're strong, they're imposing. And so the people refuse to go in. And it's a terrible episode. God judges them. He says, you, you all will die. Your kids, the next generation will be the ones I'll take in finally. But Deuteronomy points out in a way that Numbers doesn't, that what's really at stake there is, as Deuteronomy 132 puts it, their unbelief. Mm. It's not just they're refusing to obey a command. They're not trusting God. And so when we encounter Deuteronomy, it's important to realize underneath all the commands are the call to trust and to love. Mm. Um, and, And that law can be heard apart from trust or love. It can be heard simply as somebody in power trying to make you do what they want. 
But in the Bible, when God gives his law again and again, it's constantly pointing out that ultimately it's about trusting him and delighting in him. And that really one of the great works of the spirit in our hearts is changing us so that we hear God's law, not as the imposing uh, sort of tyrant making you do it his way, but rather we hear it in love and we're able to trust it, even sometimes when we don't understand it or when it mm. frustrates us. We know it's the will of a good father who mm -hmm. knows better than we do. So um, law in that case can be heard as a, a good word. And like the psalmist, we can delight in it. Good. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about the psalmist. I think that when we when we come and, and listen to the psalmist's words about the law, it can seem almost overwhelming uh, how positive the psalmist is about the law. And it makes me curious... Is it your sense that something about our day and age makes us more apprehensive to the law? Or, or is it your sense in Deuteronomy, but then also in, in the whole Bible, that people have always had this complicated relationship with the law, uh, believing in one sense what you said, that this is, this is given to us as revelation by a good God, and it's a guide, it's a lamp, it's, it's all of these things. Um, we don't often go to that as our first response to law. We, we, we go other places yeah. in our culture. Do you think that that's something that's, that rings true in, in the history of the church, or is it something unique to our day and age, our, our pushback on all law and authority? What's your sense? Well, I mean, Deuteronomy 1 does say that unbelief has been the basic flaw all the way back in the time of the wilderness, Israelites, and we could go further back into the book of Genesis even. But I, I do think there is something about the nature of our unbelief now. Mm. It's a secularized and individualized form of unbelief, the likes of which the world really hasn't seen. Um, you know, Israelites would have been tempted in all sorts of ways because they're sinners and they're coming from sinful Egypt and they're going to sinful Canaan, uh, both inside and outside. They're going to be tempted to not trust God, but they're going to be tempted to trust other powers mm. and other laws. Because people back then know that they serve somebody, right? We live in a day and age where Bob Dylan's got to actually go sing that you got to serve somebody. Like that demands saying mm. because it's not assumed. You know, we live in a day and age where, um, you know, you can speak of, as it's been said, the idea of sort of expressive individualism. You, you define yourself, you're your own boss or God. Um, and the notion of autonomy is so dominant. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if it's what frustrates us, we think it's what's ideal. Um, and, you know, that that just wouldn't make sense to people back then and there. Mm. They would believe you might have to serve this God and that God and the other God and that king and that Lord. But the notion that you would just be autonomous wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. Mm. So there is a unique flavor, I think, to the way in which we can struggle with yeah. law. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not so much just for us that it's God's law, but any law at all. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, it made me think, I wonder if part of it um, in the the time of the Israelites here, um, if the question of, of whose law is more practical to trust, uh, that seems more apparent to provide what I what I need, Should I, can I trust and believe that God will provide? Or there are these other gods that seem to be providing for them over there. And, and certainly we can resonate with that. Um, but But the focus of whose law is 
most competing in our minds. It is this interesting, it's my law, it's, it's, it's myself, it's my own interpretation of what's, of first, who I am, what I'm for, and what I'm going to do with my life, which certainly I, I think that makes sense to me, is, is, a, is rather new. Yeah. And, and so much of Deuteronomy can be really frustrating at first reading that way, because so many, particularly when you get to chapter 12 to 26, it's describing you know, how you deal with debt and investment, how you deal with war. And so much of it is God's people are going to tie one arm behind their back. So ways that other nations are going to fight, you're not going to fight that way. I mean, the best thing you've got on your side in the ancient battle is the element of surprise. It's taken completely away. Every battle, you have to go send a white flag and offer terms, which means you never get to surprise the other side. Mm. Uh, or, you know, thinking economically, the best way to ensure a future is to keep building up the debts of others around you. Mm. Over against that, the law is going to describe every seventh and every 49th year resetting debts in various ways. Uh, it's going to limit the way that you can build and amass wealth. Um, economically, militarily, it's, it's, it's not the most promising strategy mm. to us at first glance. It seems, frankly, stupid, mm. unless something else is true, that Deuteronomy also says, what other nation has a God who's so near? Yeah, yeah. Um, and like so many things here, God tells us to act in a way that if God isn't the God of the gospel, is just stupid. Mm. But if he is, then it can be the way of life. So that, I mean, that's just, that that's can really be frustrating, good. can it? Yeah, uh, no, that's really good. That's great. So for you, as we wrap up here, what's your favorite part of Deuteronomy or favorite parts? Yeah, there'd be different sections at different times that have meant a lot. I think the, the section that no doubt has been the most challenging, and this is a long answer, uh, is from chapter 6 through chapter 11. Uh, chapter 6, like I'd mentioned, has that remarkable call that, you know, Israel, your God is one, therefore love him with everything you have, your heart, soul, and mind. And then it goes on in, in the next several chapters to describe three ways your heart will lead you not to do that. And it repeatedly says, don't say in your heart. Um, don't say in your heart, you know, that my hands have gotten me what I have. Don't feel entitled like you made it. Know that you received it from God. He gave you the land. Don't say in your heart that you've defeated the others and you can win. and Keep yourself secure in battle. No, the battle's the Lord's. He's the one who fights for you. Uh, don't say in your heart that you're more moral or righteous than the Canaanites who are being judged. And, and those three statements of what you're not to say in your heart that follow in chapters 6 through 11, I find again and again just challenging the way in which the human heart goes, that we are so tempted to think uh, that we're the ones who have or need to provide materially. We're the ones who have or need to provide security. And we're the ones who have or need to be more moral, at yeah. least more moral than those people. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are just things that continually search your heart, uh, that are perennially and personally so uh, just prevalent in the way in which my heart runs and I think every human heart yeah. runs. Yeah. Um, so those three statements there in chapter 6 to 11 are by far the most significant ones mm. in my own reading of it. Yeah, that's very powerful. All right, well, Mike, thanks for joining me to talk about Deuteronomy. Yeah, this was great fun. All right.